Office Hours Live is brought to you by Arroya, the ultimate cultivation platform. Unlock the power of crop steering through our state-of-the-art sensors and software. Repeat successful runs and scale faster than ever before. Schedule a demo today at Arroya.io. All right. It's Thursday. That means it's time for Arroya Office Hours Live. Welcome, everybody. A couple of reminders before we get started. This hour is your chance to hear from the experts, get answers in real time about data you're seeing with your grow, and share cultivation tips and tricks with uh, tricks with other growers in this exciting industry. We thank everybody in advance for not using this time for things like airing policy or industry grievances or asking about Arroya pricing, although please do book a demo so we can talk about that goodness. My name is Keisha. I will be your moderator today. If you have any questions, feel free to type them in the chat at any time. If your question is selected, we'll ask you to unmute yourself so you can go ahead and ask it. And for folks who are asking for the first time live today, you can win an Arroyo hat. We're going to limit that to U.S. residents only, one hat per household. Um, plus, we are raffling off one of our limited edition Arroyo t-shirts. If you just post your email address in the chat, that's going to uh, get you entered for your chance to win. How's it going, Seth and Jason? Pretty good. Staying Yay. warm. Excellent. Good to see you guys. Are you ready for our first question? Sure. Awesome. Okay. It comes from our friends at River City Growers. They wrote in, what types of readings are you looking for with plant measurements? And on what days of flower would you recommend they be taken? These questions lead right directly into our theme for the week, which is manual readings and sensor values. So Seth and Jason, how about we start with an overview? Yeah. Yeah, we, let's just uh, we'll do a little screen share here and we'll kind of look at a uh, little array view and kind of the uh, manual reading inputs that we currently look at. You know, the, the list is pretty deep there, but there are a few key ones that you want to look at. Um, typically, you know, as a grower, we should be taking our feed EC, feed pH, uh, runoff EC and runoff pH on a pretty, pretty much daily basis if we're being responsible. So. This is a great spot to enter some of those manual reads uh, right directly on your phone without having to pull out a notebook or a binder or write on a spreadsheet and then go later enter that into the computer. But some of these are quite important. Um, One that I really like to look at in terms of, you know, physical measurements when we think of measuring is plant height. We want to really track our plants stretch throughout early generative and really determine when that plant stops stretching and naturally has rolled over into its reproductive phase you know um if we try to implement some of our steering strategies at the wrong time that can have some pretty detrimental effects not so much to plant health but to our desired outcome which is both quality and quantity using these tools wrong can kind of lead us in the wrong direction or just not get you know that yield increase we're looking for so really learning to time it based on plant height node spacing and even taking stem diameter about every other day through stretch is pretty good you know that's not so tight that it's going to be uh, a huge pain to go take, but it's going to be close enough that the most we could miss that stop is by one day, which is totally acceptable. Yeah. So for plant height, I think one of the, the most critical ones, it's going to help you time out your growth cycles, especially when you start just tailor per strain. And that's looking at that plant height uh, right at, when you go from your 18.6 um edge light cycle to that 12, 12, and you begin some rooting in and maybe even some generative steering at that point. So definitely absolutely at the end of edge, get that, that plant height in there and then compare that to how you grew throughout the cycle, what that, uh, stretching looked like throughout your generative. And then did we 
get the right size plant that we were looking for. So uh, especially for like two or three tier growers with the LEDs, a lot of times those plants start stretching up in through the, the LED lights and anything above those is obviously going to lose quality and, and quantity. So maybe you can shorten up your veg time a little bit, uh, which is always desired to get a little bit more, uh, a little bit more cycles in through there. And, or, you know, if your plants didn't quite end up with enough uh, vegetative stems and structure to them uh, or true veg, you know, maybe grow that strain just a little bit taller before you run into a 12, 12 and, and flip for generative. Yeah. I mean, you know, strain to strain, a lot of people have been surprised, especially in the multi-tier grows, how small you really can flip a plant to try to keep it inside that height range. And, you know, once we switch over to that commercial setting, uh, we really don't want to be touching the plant. So that is super crucial really to dial that plant height coming in, because if I've only got four and a half or five and a half feet overhead, my plant height needs to be dialed. And now that I've put, you know, all of my plants onto this shelving system, it's more work to get to an individual plant. So I really want to minimize the times that I have to go in and train, tie the plant down or do anything like that. Um, and when I say it's surprising on some strains, if you're used to a traditional setup with not necessarily unlimited, but let's say at least eight feet of overhead height, you might be surprised when you find that you're flipping plants that are, you know, 12 inches or less. <laughs> That's where it really comes in. And, you know, crop registration is key to tracking that because said it a bunch of times and I'll say it again, once you have the volume of plants that you have going through the average commercial facility, it becomes very difficult to keep track of it just through observation. You know, at, at any given time, you might have the same strain in every single phase of its life in your facility. And as cool as that sounds to go look at, at the point that you have that many rooms, you might not have time to just go stare at the plants and think about it for hours on end every day. So you've got to really find a, a system that relies on quantified measurements to make these choices. Yeah. And some of these, uh, manual readings that we have in here, when I think about, uh, a manual grow journal, things that you might already be taking in, in a notebook or, or any of those type of other documentation ways, you can now get those directly into our system. And for some of these, it's nice to have just as a transition period. So maybe you are taking, uh, you know, spot water contents right now, or some spot, uh, EC measurements in that substrate with, uh, with various, different types. Maybe you're using the Solus, uh, maybe you're using like, you know, some blue lab equipment for these type of, um, measurements. And, and what you can do is you can start to kind of calibrate and get used to using time series data from systems like Aurora, where they're automatically taking this information and maybe you're just not used to that. So it's a great transition period to start just documenting in compare against what you're seeing in your charts and, and kind of get used to having a little bit more, more free time from labor and not taking some of those readings. Yeah. And, you know, just honestly getting in, getting to develop those good habits, because although Arroyo is going to capture all kinds of data for you, you've still got to put in enough work to organize it. You've still got to analyze it yourself to an extent. You know, Arroyo is not going to just spit out the choices you need to be making. It's going to give you the information that you need to make those choices. So giving yourself some context in terms of, you know, even some of these that a lot of us aren't really used to taking like stem diameter. I have never taken that on a super regular basis, but if I was running a new nutrient line or trying, let's say, just starting to implement generative growth strategies and stuff, I might want to keep track of that because some of my plants are going to respond by having a much beefier stem and hopefully, you know, having a lot stronger structure. If I don't see that on certain strains, I, I want to know and I want to have it recorded so that I just have that bit of information about that strain and I know what to expect when I apply certain techniques to it. 
One of the things you'll notice in this system is we're letting you attribute it specifically to a zone. So if you are using your harvest groups and you have defined what strains are in what zones, it really helps you keep track of how those strains are behaving. And if you are obviously monocropping in a room, then take some uh, readings, you know, multiple readings across each zone. And that'll kind of help you understand your consistencies. And, and maybe if there's any uh, zonality issues within that room as well. So, you know, my recommendation is always take at least two or three at the very minimum uh, of those manual readings per zone, ideally more, but you know, every manual reading does cost time. So if you can make good decisions based off of, you know, a limited set of, of data, then, then spend your time doing other things, but uh, you, you want to capture more than one. So when we look at things like plant height, I always like to try and attribute the manual reading to the same plant that we have some Taros 12s installed to, and then we can correlate that directly to the data, right? So maybe I've got a, a zone with three substrate sensors in there. I'll take three uh, plant heights and, you know, depending on how much different those are and, and if those plants accurately represented the crop, then uh, I might, might take more. Absolutely. You know, going back to crop registration is just really, really, really important. Can't stress that enough. And then, you know, really just not only adding these manual readings, but don't be afraid to add a note in there, you know, take pictures with your notes. And then as you get deeper and deeper, you might find yourself looking at things like stomatal conductance here with, you know, most people probably don't have a leaf parameter, but this is, you know, another really fun value to look at and say, okay, are my plants doing what I think they're doing? We're going to put that in. Are they conducting as much water through their stomata? Yes or no. Um, water activity, that's, you know, more of a post-production thing, but very important. We want to establish that line between when our product is uh, too wet and mold can grow or other bacteria or other pathogens rather, or it's so dry that, you know, we've sacrificed quality and weight. It helps with that consistency. Um, you know, we can go through most of these are on here. They're in here for a reason. You know, you as a grower, do you need to take every one of these? Maybe not, but there are more tools in your toolbox to compare how your facility is performing versus how you expect it to perform. And then also diversify, you know, like uh, we as a sensing company don't typically do a lot of controls. However, most facilities we work at have some sort of automated control system. A lot of those systems come with a less sophisticated sensor or a different brand of sensor. Having that redundancy in your system is great. So if you want to say, okay, I'm going to spot check RH out here with uh, my brand X environmental controller sensor <laughs> that I'm going to check on that platform for. Now I can get that in there once a day. Let's say, you know, it's on a screen that I got to walk up to in the room or in the hallway and get, I can start comparing those. So I know that when Arroyo says that we're at 62% humidity and brand X says we're at 65. Okay. I personally trust the Arroyo ones more myself, but uh, now I have a feeling, you know, and I, I've written it down. That way, when I could go back and say, all right, I was, yep, that's what it was that time. Not so much. Well, I had this feeling that that sensor was running low or high this week or that week. You know, we want everything to be as repeatable as possible inside of, you know, an eight or nine week flower period and also in a full plant life cycle. And this, you know, capturing as much data as possible is how we're going to accomplish that. 
And we'll, we can look at uh, some of the other control systems. A lot of times have the ability to run an offset from their sensor data. And what I prefer is obviously having your climate stations in a, a representative area in the room. So that's typically within a foot of the canopy, and you know at least somewhere in one of the the quadrants or the, towards the middle of the room. And if you are using a, a controller offset and it's got a different uh, climate station than ours, get those sensors within a, a pretty close range of each other. You know, I like to say, you know, if you can have those hanging within a foot of each other, then you're, you're eliminating other variables that could account for that offset. And you're, you're getting a better capture of the true environmental parameters in there. Oh yeah. And you know, I mean, another thing too, is when you're looking at that room and you do have sensor placement, if you're getting some value that you don't expect, go investigate it. And sometimes you might find that that side of the room, I mean, I've talked to several clients who hang it up and I can't believe it's that dry in the room. Like why? Well, it's molding. Show me a picture of your climate station. It's right in front of a fan or the DHU. And it's like, it's not that it's bad on their part or anything. It was just kind of like, okay, anytime we see something like that, we should investigate. And then also make a record of it. So now you got a spot check on that device and go, okay, here's a note. When I put it by the DHU, it does not read accurately. It's off by 10 degrees Fahrenheit and 20% humidity or something like that. And I like to kind of think about these parameters in my head on, on two different uh, two different aspects. Well, the first would be thinking about uniformity. So we can obviously have crop uniformity and we can have uh, environmental uniformity and uniformity is just an instant snapshot. It's a snapshot of what's going on right at this minute across our population, across the volume of that room. And obviously if you have good uniformity, then you can start looking at consistency. And I, I like to think about consistency as the performance over time is the uh, HVAC equipment operating as expected, you know, every day, all the time, uh, are our plants growing as we expect. And so if you can think about those two as a separate aspect, a lot of times it's going to help you improve uniformity and, or then look at uh, the specific variables that are increasing or decreasing the consistency over the run. Yeah, you, you've got to separate your variables and start learning what you can and can't play with and what is actually affecting everything. And a lot of times it's really tempting to go, oh, well, uh, my yield was terrible on that one. I had high humidity. I had low light. I had this or that. You got to pull those apart one at a time before you can really make a judgment and say this is what was wrong. Like fix everything you can. And then remember that, you know, in the last, well, couple hundred years that people have been doing a lot of plant research and trying to really figure out how plants work. You know, it used to take a whole summer. It used to take a whole growing season. If we want to get into fruit breeding or just raising fruit trees, we're talking about years to experience any returns. So that's something it's hard to, as a grower, be patient when you've got this data right at your fingertips. You want to act on every little bit of it, but sometimes it's better to keep your consistency, look at the entire run, and then start to make our decisions for the next run, especially if there's nothing catastrophic happening. You know, if our goal is just to get from 2.5 to 3.5 pounds, if we've been consistent at 2.5, we're going to do that, step it up slowly, treat it one variable at a time so that we can observe what happens when we just change that one variable. Yeah, a couple of things that you kind of kicked my mind there about. And so an example of analyzing uniformity using manual readings would be, you know, taking multiple plant heights or, or multiple runoff ECs, runoff pHs across that room. So that's, you know, a snapshot of right now. We're saying, all right, we have 12 
plant height readings from this room, what is the standard deviation or what's the variation between our top values and our bottom values? And uh, then uh, an example of how to use those for consistency would be taking those readings every other day or, or what your labor allows to, to be most helpful for how your facility operates. And one of the things that's really cool about taking notes and adding pictures in here as well is you can notify other members on your team. So maybe you did see a big variation in, in plant height across there and you might hit up your, your clone manager, tag them in the comments with a pound sign and or at sign, excuse me, mm -hmm. and their name. And that'll notify them that, uh, you know, hey, Seth is, you know, there's something that your clone team can do to, to help us improve our uniformity and have yeah. more projectability on our uh, crop height. Absolutely. Especially when we start talking about some bigger facilities, you know, as this whole industry has evolved, I've definitely noticed um, a lot more specialization than we see necessarily in some other horticultural industries. So, you know, it's very typical to have someone that's just in charge of veg and cloning. Okay, well, getting this information back to them because they may not always, they're not spending as much time in the flower room seeing how those plants end up, nor are they probably doing nearly as much between when it leaves their care and the time they would go look at it. So it's really important that everyone that's actually, you know, the, the art, the human side of it, that needs to be appealed to as well. And everyone's got to have that information. You know, if you've got a veg manager that's working on cloning, They've got a way they like to do it and it doesn't work. They probably have some good reasons for doing it the way they do it. So it's, it's more of a conversation than just, oh, hey, smaller clones. Oh, hey, bigger clones. Uh, like, OK, here's here's why, you know, <laughs> here's what we're looking at, guys. We got to adjust a whole host of different strategies to accomplish this. And the more data we can have, the more comfortable everyone's going to be. One of the major goals of Aurora is getting everyone to work as a team at the facility. And so, we, you know, we always encourage that you, you build out uh, the role permissions and you try and get as many people involved in documenting into the system as possible. And this really helps the people that are good and specialized in a specific area get get assistance. So, you know, maybe you're doing a good job documenting uh, your pest management stuff in here and you, you know, take a picture of your sticky cards and you say, Hey, you know, at PM manager, uh, I'm seeing a new type of bug or I'm seeing a higher pest load in this room, take some pictures of it, tag them in there. And it's really just going to help them use their time more efficiently and have, have more eyes what's going on in the, the room. Absolutely. And that's one thing, you know, since we were screen sharing this week, I might as well show while we're on it. Um, you can really customize each role in the facility. So you can have everything up to an administrator, you know, head honcho down to, uh, hey, we finally hit the point in cannabis where you might have some interns running around doing some of these spot readings for you. And you can give them the ability to look at the map and enter readings. And that's about it if you want. So we can really customize this so everyone in the facility can start using it and uh, helping build that data set that we're looking for. Because there are a lot of moving parts. If not everyone's on board, you're missing missing little snippets here and there. We tried to include as much flexibility on this as possible because so many of these facilities operate with different levels of employees. And so you can add more roles. You know, if you need 10 roles in there, then you can absolutely specify exactly what each person can access, see, modify, and contribute to. 
Amazing. Thank you guys so much for that overview. I actually learned a ton in that. Um, but what really stands out to me is, first of all, the importance of the human element still, always. Um, but also, second of all, data is just really expanding the grower's tool, toolbox, giving you much more insight into stuff that you can't see and uh, giving you other considerations maybe that you hadn't thought about. So um, really appreciating that synergy. Thank you, guys. Okay. Well, Eric is on with us today and he posted a question. Eric, you want to go ahead and unmute yourself and ask? Yeah, of course. Um, first of all, guys, I just want to thank you guys for the last like few weeks I've been on. Um, I'm definitely seeing improvements all throughout my run, yeah. whether it's my veg or my flower cycle right now. So appreciate it a lot. Um, I had a quick question. Uh, this shouldn't be too complicated, but how large do you guys like to keep your P1s relative to your P2s? So I feel like I have an understanding of how many shots to bring it up and you know how long to do it, but I'm not understanding what size they should be because usually there's a recommended, oh, let's say like one to 3% for, for veg, but is that one to 3% the size of the maintenance shots or the size of the ramp up shots? And how should you think about that? And would you change that throughout your vegetative or um, generative steering, or it's just like a set amount for ramp up. So I think I'm just going to start off with the basics here. And I don't necessarily like to think about shot size relative to each other uh, for generative. For example, a lot of times I won't even run any P2 shots. We'll just be running P1 shots. So I like to think about those shot sizes in reference to the substrate um, size and how big our drybacks were. So for kind of just a very general outline of running P1s, I like to have four shots in one hour. And so if I see about a 20% dryback, uh, then I'll need four shots of approximately five, maybe 6% if I want to get right up to my field capacity within that hour. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, it does change. It can change a little bit. So when we're talking about generative, we want to go minimum shots. So if, if we can hit that in four inside one hour and get a 23 hour dryback, that's a great, great generative strategy. Um, when we switch over to veg, what we're looking at is more and more irrigation events in the day to push that plant to grow more. That being said, if we lengthen that out a little bit, maybe to two hours, we can fit a lot more one to 3% irrigations in and get more events in and push that vent, that plant more vegetatively in the daytime. However, um, pushing a plant harder that way is not necessarily always what we want to do. So it's really important to go back to taking some of those manual readings and notes and pictures. I think pictures speak a thousand words when we're talking about plants. I mean, they always do, but especially to the grower, we're used to staring at plants. So uh, if you can start to relate some of those things in the future, it's going to help you a lot. A couple things to keep in mind as well is uh, every once in a while, you just have equipment limitations that don't let you uh, perform perfectly. Uh, as your intentions for crop steering. So thinking about the drip rate of your emitters, uh, if you've got high flow emitters that are, you know, are, are dripping faster than you'd like, you may need to split that into shorter durations of irrigation just to allow the substrate capillary effect to help unif or get uniform water content throughout the entire media. Um, and then another thing to kind of keep in mind is how much runoff that you're trying to push for to modulate your EC levels. And so if, if you need a little bit more runoff, sometimes you'll, you want slightly larger shot sizes so that you can uh, pull that EC down. Yeah. And that's something we're always working with is the limitation of the medium that we're working in. 
You know, in rock wool, if we put on too big of a shot too fast, we're going to get channeling. Cocoa, same thing. It's going to run off before we actually hit field capacity because, as Jason said, it doesn't have time to move through the medium with the capillary effect. So sometimes, you know, like in an ideal world, if we want to go for a bigger and bigger shot with fewer for generative, we will inevitably hit a point. With cocoa, it's, uh, you know, it can be higher, up closer to 10%, maybe a little more. With rock wool, 6%, 7% generally pushing on as big of a shot as we want to put on, you know, and if we were trying to push these, push these plants as generatively as possible, we would have, and I mean, you can see this in some very old school growing techs. You have a big media size, big pot. We hit that thing once in the morning. If the pot's big enough and the plant's small enough, we might wait a whole day, you know, two days before we water. What we're doing is giving it one irrigation pulse and then a lot of generative stress, but at the same time, growing that way, we end up with a plant that might be four, maybe five feet tall out of a five to seven gallon pot and just not have the weight that we're looking for. It might have the quality, but uh, we never we never got to that bulking phase. The plant really couldn't go into overdrive. And that's what we're kind of trying to do is uh, really time when we want to shift gears with the plant, I guess is a good way to put it. Yeah. Substrate size, one of those things that it's pretty easy to dial in, uh, in comparison to some of the other challenges that people face. And when it, you know, if you're a soil grower, you're used to having a larger substrate so that you can store some of the the nutrients in that, uh, that living soil. The thing about hydroponic medias is all our nutrients are coming from our fertigation anyways. So as long as we're not causing a volumetric issue with the roots, we can be in a little bit smaller substrate and, and be able to keep that plant healthy. Um, on the other side of that is obviously if our substrate's a little too small, we're going to run into challenges keeping the water content high enough when we're doing a long, maybe a 23 hour dry back during our generative. Yeah. You know, if you're finding that, uh, you, you can't ripen after bulking just because the plant dries out too fast, get a bigger pot, Quit beating yourself up, 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 beating yourself up everywhere else and solve the problem in a simple way or cut your plant size in half. <laughs> But, um, yeah. Eric, did that answer your question? Uh, absolutely. More than enough. Thank you. Amazing. Awesome. Thank you so much for asking. And just a reminder to everybody's on with us. We're here for you. Please feel free to type any questions you have in the chat. And actually, if you want to uh, be entered to win a, a limited edition Arroyo t-shirt, type in your email address too. All right, you guys, we got quite a few write-ins this week. Um, this one came from Pat who emailed us. Hi folks, I have a question regarding EC versus moisture level. Starting with the thought of dry out causes EC to rise. I have a blue lab pulse and when checking in the morning, the moisture level may be 25% and the EC 1500. As the irrigation cycle starts, the moisture content starts to rise and the EC seems to rise also. Then the EC starts to fall as the moisture continues to rise. Is the rise in EC due to needing more water for the sensor to read properly? Did you get all that? Yeah. I don't know the specifics on, on what the um, blue lab pulse meter is using. My guess is this is actually just a, a physical parameters of the pot and or the pot size as that water content is moving through it during an irrigation. You know, honestly, what I look at that right off the bat is if you're saying 1500, we're talking about PPM. Uh, if we convert that with a standard PPM 500 scale over, we're looking at about a 3.0 EC. If you are pushing enough runoff, um, basically your plants eating through some of that EC in the daytime, it's dipping below 3.0. Uh, 
when you go ahead or 1500 in your case, when you go ahead and water with a 3.0 EC, um, it's going to come up a little bit just because that nutrient solution has more salt than your, than your media does, but it's going to go back down a little bit. And then as the media dries out, we do expect to see that EC value go up unless it's already a fairly low value. If we're at a fairly low value, which 1500 would not be very high at 3.0, it would not be surprising to see that go from 1500 down to a thousand back up to 1500 throughout the day. If you had 24 seven data logging. Yeah. EC is a concentration. So if we have the same amount of nutrients and less water, then our EC is going to be higher. And the truth is for vice versa as well. Yep. And it's just, it, like I said, it, as you get to the lower range of EC, a lot of times we don't see the plants behaving quite like we expect them to, to behave at a higher EC in the root zone. Excellent. Thank you so much, Pat. Thank you for writing in your question. Um, we got a question from Hippo. They wanted to know, besides doing generative steering, is there any other way to get the bud to ripen faster by adjusting the environment, PPFD, CO2, and EC? There might be a few things you could try to do, but typically when we look at a PPFD, for instance, light intensity, okay, we want to use as much of that light as possible in the timeline we're given. Losing intensity, especially if we have a plant that, you know, if we're trying to get it to finish, that means it's still growing, right? We're still packing on a little bit of weight. We're still ripening trichomes. We don't really want to limit any of our crop limiting factors too hard. So let's say if we a week early back off on the light intensity, well, we just created a limitation in the amount of energy we have available to the plants. Same thing with water. If we say, oh, we're going to run them drier at the top end, you're, you're limiting your plants. So, uh, you know, a lot of it, unfortunately, will go back to genetics. There's a few things we can do, but pretty much once you kick a plant into flowering, it has a timeline that it has to live on. You know, and a big way we can see that is a lot of strains if we run them at 56 days, they'll have a certain THCA percentage versus THC. We pull that at 65. You might see that ratio reversed. So kind of the old adage with outdoor growers goes, if you want it to be done and you think it's about ready, wait a week. You know, we're, I'll go back to it. We're, we're just hitting that point in genetic development and cannabis where breeders are starting to pull together things like you know, how long is the flowering period? We're really nailing down some of these traits that before we just, we, you know, no one, no one had solid crop registration on and no one was sharing it. So do I want some of my strains to finish faster? Yes. But do I have to accept the limitations that running that strain presents? Absolutely. That's it. Mother nature will always be in charge, won't she? Yeah. And I do want to stress that there are techniques that people will use like drought stress or, uh, you know, low temp stress to try to speed that up. If we do that, we are strongly risking damaging the plant and pulling down a less healthy plant, which isn't what we want. You know, if we're trying to force it to finish or force it, we are probably compromising some quality somewhere along the way. Or, you know, like if we're talking about temperature stress, looking at potentially running into mold issues and other facility problems that we just don't need to have present. Excellent. That's great. Thank you so much. Eric, you had another question. You want to go ahead and unmute yourself? Uh, yeah. Um, so one question for you guys, I recently got some winches installed. So my lights are much easier to adjust, I guess, up and down. So, you know, you get that, 
uh, that flexibility like, and I've been pretty close, like within that one foot of my canopy and I don't see any signs of light burn, but have you guys noticed anything like other than maybe the leaves, like my leaves look healthy, um, that would indicate you're pushing too hard. And if you guys have any guidance there. So it's specific to light, uh, cannabis is a very light hungry plant It grows fast. It can harvest a ton of energy. And so, you know, if you're using something like LEDs, I don't necessarily get concerned about being within a foot of it. If you're something like HPSs, you can get a little concerned because of the heat from those is going to modify your environment and your uh, VPD so the relative humidity and temperatures are going to be less controlled, less ideal than you want right at the top of the canopy. But if your light quantities are what you want with that LED and you're not seeing any negative impacts, I'd keep doing what you're doing. Yeah. In terms of light, um, typically it'll tell you like in the led situation, I have run lights too close, which is basically touching them and, uh, they turn white, they bleach pretty hard or, you know, like with the HPS, basically it just gets really hot the closer you get to that light. So if you're inside of, I'm guessing you're at led, if it's a foot, because with HPS, you probably would have, have some of that clawing dried out bud leaves, general torching. Um, yeah. As what do you mean by getting too white? So basically like they'll look albino if you have them too close to those LEDs, like they'll just bleach it out. Gotcha. All right. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thanks for your question, Eric. This is a perfect segue into a question we got from Ryan at Wild West Genetics. They're looking for some advice. We wrote, I have an LED room that is about to harvest, but the plants don't look as finished as they normally do in our HPS room. Some plants still have light colored hairs when normally they look more finished now. The canopy is at 990 to 1050 mole. Any thoughts? Yeah. So... When we're looking at the spectrum from LEDs versus HPS, that's probably going to be the, the factory that's playing in into this. And so a lot of HPSs have quite a bit of red and far red. Uh, typically, that's something we'd see in fall. And that's going to encourage those plants to ripen up a little bit uh, with LEDs. They're going to be usually closer into the actual photosynthetic ranges um, for chlorophyll A and chlorophyll B. So... I like that sometimes because we can grow quite a bit larger plant. Maybe we'll have to extend the the harvest session by a few days in order to achieve the same ripeness. Typically, you know, even on top of the efficiencies that we've added uh, for utilities of using LEDs, a lot of times you're going to get more weight because they're pushing the right wavelength for those plants to harvest. And it is going to be brand dependent. Fortunately, LEDs have come a long ways in the last five to 10 years and manufacturers are much more likely to have a well-tailored spectrum. So, you know, if you have any concerns, look up the manufacturer, uh, the model that you have, take a look at those spectrums and then uh, do a little bit of research on how plants behave. Yeah. And, you know, something to remember because like that HPS, we're running that far red. We don't have the ability to like slowly bring that in. One thing we are doing is pushing a little bit of stress on the plant that way the whole time by having not quite the ideal spectrum. So one way to look at it is like, yes, maybe I do add a week switching to LEDs on this strain. However, that's an extra week to grow more mass. And I have a more efficient light that's allowing me to grow more mass per amount of energy I'm putting in in the form of light. So again, do we want them all to finish early? Of course we do. But if we can work more with the plant rather than against it, we're always going to get a better result. And another thing is 
thinking about the room parameters. So your environment with LEDs, because you've got less radiation hitting those leaf surfaces, a lot of times you're going to need to up the temperature in your room uh, slightly to accommodate the, the change that the plant's feeling. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's another uh, tool that's always good for a grower to have is a small laser thermometer. Go get your leaf temp, see like how much radiant energy that light's actually putting out. You know, um, if you're seeing a leaf temp that's spiking up in the upper eighties and low nineties, move your HPS up a little bit. <laughs> you know, what you might find though, is like with the LEDs and a lot of them just put out, I mean, some of the newer models with UV supplementation, a little bit of far red will help out with that leaf temp. But a lot of growers find that taking that heat source of the HPS out of the room really does result in having to significantly pump up the temperature in there. Like the difference being that before they never had to run their heat ever. And now they have to for quite a bit of the year just to get it up to, let's say, 82 as a leaf surface temp. It's one of the reasons we love using vapor pressure deficit to analyze a room. When we think about that temperature being higher with HPSs, well, HPSs are also burning off relative humidity. So make sure that you've checked in and that your room and those facilities can accommodate the change that you've made from uh, running HPS now and running LED lights. Dropping the knowledge. I love it. Okay. So just a reminder for everybody who's on with us, don't forget to type your question in the chat. Um, this question came in from uh, BMG389. You guys spoke a little bit earlier about light intensity. So um, they wrote some growers lower light intensity and CO2 later in flower. Any cons to this? Save a little money. Yeah. I mean, it just depends on how much you're talking about lowering it, obviously. Uh during the, the end of the cycle, the, the plant is a little bit less vigorous in the amount of growth as it's turning its chemicals into a, a ripened product. And so you might be able to get away with it as long as you know, you're not seeing a, a significant decrease in your production. Yeah, I would, you know, much, much like ta tapering off your nutrient regimen, you know, do it, do it minimally. You don't have to do it too much. And, uh, you know, typically as far as light intensity goes, um, we still are not really approaching indoors what direct sunlight is outside. So lowering it back, say 20% on your indoor grow light typically isn't going to have the same kind of effect as you as, you know, putting a shade cloth, cloth up outside. So looking at it, you know, you'd really to say for sure that you want to do that. I would want to have some trial data and say, all right, when I did this, did this in fact increase my terpene content or my THC content? What, what exactly happened? Because some of those pathways too, when we're talking about cannabinoid and terpene per, uh, formation in the plant have to do with time and energy inputs. So if we don't have intense enough light at the right time, you know, some strains are going to ripen earlier, but they would actually be ripening in some pretty warm months, like late August, early September, where they're from. We, we may not necessarily need to have a big overnight diff or a big, you know, softening up at the end to try to bring them down. I think a lot of that knowledge or Techniques kind of came from the idea that, you know, in the fall, we get less intense light. Then um, that's somewhat true, but the far red has a much bigger impact on that than, say, lowering your light intensity a little bit. And as far as CO2 goes, you know, if it saves you money, cool. I would just never drop my CO2 below my PPFD. Excellent. Thank you guys. Um, so Ryan at Wild West Genetics had a couple other questions specifically about um, logging harvest data in Arroyo. So they wrote, when recording harvest data, is there a way to specify plants taken for live extraction? They wouldn't have a dry weight. 
So if you're using uh, our metric integrated version of the software, that actually can get captured because you're immediately going to be putting it in a package. However, we are still coming out with more and more analytic options over time to give you control on how you want to evaluate your harvest, because that's a good point. We do have several growers that are going straight to only fresh frozen, for instance, or a certain portion of their crop is going to fresh frozen. A certain portion is going straight to wet flower. We're working on having more options to evaluate that. And one of those in the future would be hopefully, you know, uh, a historic poll, which we're looking at being able to access some of your previous data that's held in compliance databases. And uh, yeah, just overall trying to get more harvest analytics for you. Seth, their other question was any plans to link harvest data, data with metric? So currently you can link harvest data to metric. Yes. If you're doing it in metric, it all pipes right in because you're getting the weights directly through Arroyo. Uh, that data actually is generated in Arroyo and then pushed up to metrics. So that goes right in. But then we have to be clear that this functionality does depend on where they're located, right? Correct. Yeah. So right Which now we market you're in. Yep. We support California, Colorado, Michigan, Massachusetts, Nevada. I do mm -hmm. believe are the, the states that we have an, an active metric integration for, and we are working on uh, deploying that in other metric states. One of the exciting things for uh, those people that we haven't addressed their state yet or are not using metric is we're rolling out with our generic met or our generic harvest workflow. And so that's going to just help people capture those harvest weights using the RFID and uh, Bluetooth scale that we sell with the system. If we call it our touchless harvest system, it's great because you're not getting trichomes all over your, uh, your computer or your cell phone <laughs> or in your notebook. And it's yeah. also eliminating any of the chances of error because you swipe your, your tag, you weigh up that plant and it's going to capture those weights pretty quickly. Yeah. No more changing a glove just to try to write it down and be able to let go of the pen. You know? <laughs> oh, I know. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. Okay. So we have Arson who's on with us. Arson, uh, you have a question. You want to unmute yourself and ask away? Yes. Hi guys. Uh, first time viewer again. Sorry if you went over this like a thousand times. Um, I have, I have a room right now and we just harvested. This is my, I want to say third run, fourth run. So I've had some success, but I feel like every time I cut my plants and I hang them and, and, and going through the whole drying and curing process, I feel like that's where I'm lacking some sort of guidance or direction because it always seems to go south. So I don't really touch the humidity all that much. Um, I just keep a fan on for air circulation in the room and just maintain a temperature of around 70 degrees, more or less. Um, and that normally takes about seven to 10 days to dry. So that's why I haven't really been messing with the humidity or anything at all. Um, and the uh, curing process, once we trim the, trim the buds and put them in their individual packages, I, uh, put in those humidity packets to maintain around 62% humidity. So I just want to know, is there anything that I'm doing wrong? Is there anything that I'm doing right? Is there anything I can do better? Just general guidance would be very helpful. When, when you say that part of the process goes south, can you detail us kind of what, uh, what goals you're not achieving? Well, the, the, the first, the very first batch that I did, I was pulling in about 2.2, 2.3 uh, pounds per light. And then after that, I have not been able to even hit that. So it's been more around like 1.7, uh, 1.9, I think was the, was the max that I got. And I don't know what's going to be the next run, this, this run, but, um, mm -hmm. I'm not 
uh, anticipating it being over 2.7 again or, or 2.2 again. So okay. I just want to be hitting more yield essentially. So I don't know if I'm, I'm messing up on the whole grow or just the drying process, but um, yeah, that's the, that's the uh, phase I'm in right now. So I just figured I might ask. Yeah. So this is where I would uh, utilize different checkpoints of data analytics. So looking at your wet weights, you know, are the wet weights coming through consistently or, you know, is it, you know, a decreased proficiency in the cultivation that's actually uh, less dry yield. Uh, if those wet weights are all fairly same and or increasing, you're seeing a decrease, then definitely take a look at the drying process. And that means attributing your cultivars are, you know, are we looking at cultivars that maybe just dry, lose more wet weight mm-hmm. than others. And so obviously those variables are going to help you determine which, uh, which process to, to take a look at and how to run that. One of the tools that we do sell is called a water activity meter. And it's a very common sensor in uh, industrial applications of uh, cereal manufacturing, uh, jerky process control, and, and any of those other food industries. It's, it's actually what we've used the sensor for uh, quite a bit here in, in the history of uh, meter group. And so we, we're selling those into the cannabis industry so that you can go in and document what the, the dry downs or the water activity, you know, the loss of, of moisture during your dry cycle looks like and help you really standardize um, and make sure that your, your product is going out safe. So if we do have a plant that's got much larger buds, we may need to keep it in the room a little bit longer. And by documenting that water activity, you'll know exactly when to be taking it out to achieve the correct wet weight, keep the quality of the product up, and then also keep that weight on the bud and make sure that it is going to be satisfying your test constraints for sale. Yeah. If, uh, if you haven't been having, you know, any quality problems or big problems with mold forming in your dry room, I would keep doing what you're doing for the most part. Um, typically I run a little bit lower temp, you know, around 60 and 62. <clears throat> but, uh, otherwise if you're not, if quality is not your problem, I would definitely be looking more into the cultivation side. However, one thing to always watch out for, you know, seven to 10 days for some strains is a little, even on the short side. Um, having some kind of sensor in the room so we can monitor, you know, humidity in the room while it's drying down and try to keep things consistent is pretty key. Cause we want to get past a certain point when we first dry down to avoid mold. Then we want to slow that process down. If we dry too fast. That cure is just not going to work right. If that's bone dry in there, we can't get the chemical breakdown we want. We can't get that quality cure. So Another thing to kind of think about, uh, you know, as I mentioned, those those data choke points, if you will, is thinking about the other handling involved with that product. So if you are curing it just perfect and it ends up in a, a processing room, you know, maybe during breakdown, trim, rolling, whatever your post processes there are, that humidity might be able to be increased in those rooms to, to help that product stay at just the right water activity. <laughs> now, if that water activity goes in at say, you know, 0.55 on those plants, and then they go into a room that's 30% humidity, they're going to actively lose uh, weight and they're going to lose some quality to that room, trying to get to equilibrium with the humidity in any environment that they're residing in. Absolutely. That's a good point. Bringing up processing and that, uh you know, like especially joint rolling. A lot of times that is not the quickest process. The product is, you know, in an open environment for a fair amount of time. We're working with something that we grind 
you know, there's a few different ways to do that, but we're grinding it up. We're exposing more surface area. So that's, that's another point. You know, we want to make sure that we're keeping that consistent the whole time, all the way into packaging. Otherwise, uh, yeah, we're just losing grams to the air. And so just to, you know, a good example is if our product goes into a processing room and the product is at 0.55 for water activity, if our room is at 55% humidity, there's going to be no increase or decrease in the water activity of that product. Mm -hmm. Arson, did that answer your question? Absolutely did. Thank you so much, Jenna. You bet. Awesome. Thank you for joining us and for submitting your question. We we're happy to have you and would love to send you an Arroyo hat if you're up for uh, dropping your email address in the chat. Yeah, for sure. I'll do that right now. Wonderful. Excellent. And then that's a reminder everybody else on with us. If you ask a question for the first time live, we will send you a hat. Um, all right. Well, we've got a few more questions just to close out the show. Just kind of some general, looks like some crop steering questions. So let's get to this one from Space Dog Select. They want to know what's more important, substrate conditions or hitting specific drybacks? I think drybacks are a substrate condition. Um, so I, I guess it's going to be really hard to prioritize those because they are interrelated. Uh, you know, Obviously, if your substrate conditions are way off, maybe you dried back too much or you didn't get back up to field capacity. Um, not sure where to go with this question. Yeah. So I think there's a few things to talk about here, like substrate condition in terms of uh, how well it's maintained the functionality we want it to. So in terms of rock wool, um, really value your rock wool's ability to retain water and have a high field capacity over pushing a bigger dry back. So let's say we're running 55% field capacity or at 55% in our rock wool, and we just had a burning desire to run a 30% dryback because we've heard that's cool. Um, yeah, losing your field capacity is not worth it, basically. Um, you know, your media is what's keeping your plant alive. So we always have to work inside of keeping that media inside of a good, you know, a workable range of conditions. So as Jason said, they're very interrelated. But you can start looking at with different media types where the limits to your dryback might need to be to maintain those conditions. So in rock wool, you know, we're trying to keep it above 35, 40% all the time. And in cocoa, usually call about 20% the bottom line, just so we don't have a plant that's on the other end of the table that's a little drier than the others hit 12 and actually wilt. Wonderful, guys. Thank you so much. I think this is a good one for us to close off on here. Los Green Goss wrote in, why is it important to give intervals between shots during irrigation? And how long max should I wait? Great question. Uh, I think we hit it a little bit earlier on just talking about giving the substrate a chance to, to soak up. Uh, so that's capillary effect of a substrate. It can be slightly different for different types of medias. Rockwell, for example, has very good capillary effect just because it's a unanimous, it's very consistent, uniform product. And uh, I think I've used this analogy a couple times before, and it's just a, you know, dry sponge. And so if we've got a dry kitchen sponge and we've got it under um, a sink that's dripping slightly, uh, then it's going to help get that entire thing saturated up as the capillary effect 
pulls moisture throughout the sponge. Now, if we've got the sink on high, it's very likely just going to saturate the middle of the sponge and then start running through the bottom before the capillary effect has the ability to, to catch up. So it's one of the reasons that we like lower flow drip emitters. And it's one of the reasons that we do intervals in between shots. Yep. And we also want to maintain a healthy root zone. So for instance, uh, if we had a dripper running on there, let's say 24 seven constant flow, we're really not giving the chance for the uh, media to drain a little bit and pull air down into the root zone. We really need a heavily oxygenated environment. So if we're irrigating too much and not allowing a dryback, like let's say we're trying to go for a 0.1% and maintain a straight line all afternoon, we're not giving the plant the, uh, media a chance to have any you know the right amount of water and air movement through it which is very essential yeah and so it's a it's a vacuum that i mean is, mm-hmm. is caused so when we irrigate that water is going to pull down through the substrate and behind it it's pulling uh fresh oxygen and, and basically rejuvenating those roots uh easy indicator that there's not enough oxygen or maybe some other issue is uh, roots that are a little brownish. So obviously we're looking for very healthy, robust white roots. Uh, Some people do increase the dissolved oxygen in their fertigation systems to also help provide that, uh, that fresh air to the roots. Oh yeah, absolutely. And that's, you know, that's probably one of the keys there. Just watch for those traditional over underwatering stress signs. If your block is super wet and your plants wilted and, kind of squishy down by the base you got brown roots you're you're probably not really letting it get enough of a dry back and really uh refresh the root zone it's drowning yep amazing thank you guys you also have me uh thinking i gotta take a look at my little can of babies in the backyard i am a notorious (laughs) overwaterer i'm always so worried (laughs) just get get some perlite Get some pearl. Okay. Excellent. I'm on it. (laughs) You guys posted. Um, Seth and Jason, thank you so much for what an excellent conversation. Thanks to everyone who's on with us today and submitted a question. And thanks to folks who wrote us in. We're here for you. We want to hear from you um, so that we can talk about what's going on with your grow. Um, If you have any questions about Arroyo, how it could be used to improve your cultivation production process or any other topic you'd like us to cover in a future episode of Office Hours, feel free to post it in the chat. Shoot us an email support.arroya at metergroup.com or send us a DM on Instagram. We definitely want to hear from you. We record every session. Everybody who came today is going to get a link to the video from today's discussion. And we'll also post it on the Arroya YouTube channel. Like, subscribe, and share while you're there. And if you find these conversations helpful, please do spread the word. Seth and Jason, thank you again. I look forward to seeing you guys next week. Thanks, Keisha. Bye, buddy. Office Hours Live is brought to you by Arroya, the ultimate cultivation platform. Unlock the power of crop steering through our state-of-the-art sensors and software. Repeat successful runs and scale faster than ever before. Schedule a demo today at arroya.io.